Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, editorial director, here with Mara Levinsky, senior editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, Days is the final show to return to production, which they did this week, and we're going to see a lot of changes ahead. So we've already seen the returns of Marcy Miller as Abigail and Lucas Adams as Trip, but Tamara Braun will also be reprising the role of a presumed dead Ava. Casey Moss will return as JJ. Nadia Bjorlin, as we've mentioned, will be back as Chloe, and those won't be the only familiar faces we will see. So for a preview in the new issue, I spoke to executive producer Ken Corday, co-executive producer Albert Alar, and head writer Ron Carlovati about what's coming up, and there is a lot to take in. Yeah, it is a very juicy preview, I must say. Um, I'm really excited for Tamara's return, hot on the heels of her second Emmy win. Uh, She won her first statuette for the role she will be playing again, Ava. And I thought what Ken had to say about her character, you know, specifically about uh, how we'll be seeing some different, more sympathetic layers to her was really intriguing. Uh, And the casting news does indeed continue to roll in because we got to break the news this week that Nathan Parsons is returning to GH as Ethan Lovett. It will be a short-term conversation back, tied, of course, to Robert's investigation into whether or not Holly is truly dead, but it will be great to see him again as well. Um, You know, it's funny, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about how I said in last week's podcast that exits are sort of a sexier topic news-wise and tend to get more mainstream interest, but it's the returns that count as, like, good news to soap fans, and I think, you know, all of the names uh, that we've mentioned have a lot of fans who will be really happy to see them on screen again. I totally agree. It's funny. I was just thinking the same thing. Um, And, you know, the way that these characters are so seamlessly written in and out is such a testament to today's writers. You know, you didn't really see that kind of fluidity back in the day. Like you were either on or you were off. There was not a lot of in-betweens. And there were very few visitors in the way there is now. Um, But I like the feeling that anyone can come back at any time. You know, it almost makes their exits more tolerable because, oh, I can see them again. Um, And another person who's back at Days is Heather Lindell uh, playing Jan Spears. So I spoke to Heather about coming back and she admitted that she thought she was done with the show. You know, it had been almost 15 years since she had been in Salem. And actually when the show reached out last year for her to do the Last Blast reunion for the Duel app, she thought it was a crank call. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is super psyched to be back and she is going to be mixing it up with a lot of different people this time around. 
I loved uh, reading the story that you did with her. You know, she had actually transitioned into a successful real estate career, which made the whole thing even more out of the blue for her, which I think is so fun. Um, I wonder if it will be easier, at least in the short term, for like all of the shows to work in even more short-term returns because there are so few productions up and running in the entertainment universe in general. So presumably there would be more actors whose schedules like would allow visits like the ones we're talking about. Um, we should also mention, speaking of productions that are moving forward, that the cast for the new season of Dancing with the Stars was just announced, and it is heavy on the soap names. Yeah. Uh, Kershaw Stouse, who we know from All My Children, Days, and YNR, uh, will be competing for the Mirror Ball, and so will Jesse Metcalf from Passions in Dallas, as well as Anne Hage, who played Vicky and Marley on Another World, and as you are well aware, Steph, is uh, hugely instrumental in making like a really diehard soap fan out of me. Oh, don't I know that. Please. Um, you know, it's funny. I'd stopped watching Dancing with the Stars like years ago, but with these three in the mix, you can count me in. Plus, I have an even softer spot for Chriselle after watching the latest Selling Sunset episodes. I am totally team Chriselle and can easily get sucked in again and probably will. Um, now I just wonder if we'll see Chriselle back on soaps again. You know, we never saw Jordan's body on days, so there's always a chance she could come back. You know, it's Dancing with the Stars is like the one reality competition show I don't watch. You know, I am I'm very busy with Top Chef and Drag Race and Project Runway and the list goes on. Um, but I will be watching as well. And I even told Chriselle that even though Anna H couldn't have a more special place in my heart, I will be rooting for Chriselle. That <laughs> tells you how hardcore team Chriselle I am. Um, you know, we usually see ABC soap stars on that show. Kelly Monaco from GH uh, won the first season, of course. Ingo Rademacher has competed. Cameron Matheson and Susan Lucci competed while they were on All My Children. But if they are expanding their horizons to other networks, like, please tell me where to send my list of suggestions for stars from Days and B&B and YNR. Uh, number one on my list is Torsten K. I feel like America needs to know how funny he is in real life. And I bet there's some good hoofing to be had there as well. Oh, that would be utterly delightful and a girl can dream. <laughs> um, now we started the show by talking about the changes ahead of days. And our guest today is the best person to speak about them. It is the show's executive producer, Ken Corday. So let's get him on the phone to talk about the past, present, and future of the nearly 55-year-old soap. Hi, Ken. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning. We are so happy you could join us today. It's my pleasure. So it's a good week because Days has just returned to production. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We were uh, the last to come back online and, and gratefully so because we started on uh, Monday the 31st and have six weeks of prep, a lot of time to prepare the studio and get with the COVID protocol and watch the other three soaps and you know see how they reentered. I'm close with Brad Bell, so we were in constant communication. Is Bold Beautiful, I think, was the first one to go back online about a month and a half, almost almost the date of the Emmys, 26th mm -hmm. of June. Yeah, mm -hmm. so very, very courageous of him and, and all of us to, to get back in it. Absolutely. Well, first tell us how your past six months have been. Uh, like everyone else, it was very, very difficult, confusing at first, then daunting, and then you know, rather than becoming pessimistic about the whole thing, which is very easy to do, uh, I chose the, how do we say, the higher road, the optimistic road, and tried to find some opportunity in this extreme difficulty of, of this pandemic. And, you know, the fact is we had hundreds of people unemployed and um, 
lucky enough, we had the show pre-taped through October 15th. So it was good and it was bad. It was good in that we didn't have to go into repeats. It was tough because, you know, it was five months of just sitting back and wondering. And then finally, you know, seizing the uh, the day, grabbing the bull by the horns, all those other cliches and, and jumping back in, in the pool. Mm-hmm. Well, today we are going to delve as deep as we can into the life of Ken Corday. Um, so oh, good, we are going oh, good, to... goodness me. Yeah. Which decade? <laughs> Get ready now. Um, so let's start at the beginning. You were raised in New York City uh, while your father, Ted Corday, was carving out his most impressive career in television, working on Guiding Light and As the World Turns. So what do you remember about that time growing up and your first introduction into soaps? Well, you know, as I learned by osmosis from the time I can remember, Dad started World Turns on television and. 56, he was doing Guiding Light on television at 15 minutes a day in 52. I was all of two years old, so I'm dating myself. And the amazing <laughs> thing was is they would broadcast Guiding Light on radio in the morning nationally at about 11 East Coast time. And then they'd walk up to television studio, the same cast and crew, and put it on the air live television around 2 o'clock East Coast time. That's so, amazing. It's so daunting to think that they were able to do two broadcasts a day with the same cast. And then later, uh, his his mentor and his partner, Erna Phillips, one of the, one of if not the greatest writer in the history of soap operas, who created Guiding Light as the World Turns, Another World uh, in Days of Our Lives. Uh, he and Erna Phillips decided that they should have the first half hour soap on TV. So as the world turns, I think it was around 56 or 58, went to the uh, the half hour, which is you know very new for soaps on TV and. Um, that was followed up by him producing, directing and producing World Turns from about 56, 58 until the early 60s when he decided to be a pioneer and come to the West Coast and, and sell his idea for soap. He and Erna had come up with this idea for a soap set in the Midwest. You know, Doc, Dr. Horton and Mrs. Mrs. Tom Horton were, you know, mid- Midwestern people, anywhere USA, Salem in this case. And you know, it was a different kind of format. It wasn't an urban soap opera. It wasn't vertical. You know, all could have happened in an office building. No, this was more of a rural soap, and it had that that kind of middle American country feel to it. And I think that's that's stayed with us for the last fifty plus years. But to your question, you know, I was young. I just I kind of watched and, and listened. And in those days, it was no big deal if you're your dad directed a soap opera or, or was in television. It was, a, you know, a burgeoning industry TV at that time. I really, you know, my only exposure to it was I would go to the studio hand-in-hand uh, hand with him when I was in my, you know, early early teenage years, late tens, and listen to um, Charlie Paul, who was the organist on As the World Turns. And I was so fascinated with the fact that he would just off the cuff be playing the organ with the actors as they would, uh, they you know, tape the show or the first live show, and then they would tape on kinescope. And, you know, that to me was just, yeah, an all-powerful job. And, that, you know, without the music, soap operas are a little different. And Charlie Paul was amazing and that an organ was able to, you know, fill in all the moods. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's how the music seed was planted in my head. Wow. Um, now, you mentioned Erna, but your dad also collaborated with Agnes Nixon. Um, so let's talk first talk with er- about Erna more. Um, did you ever meet her or did your father oh. tell stories about what she was like? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I knew her very well. She would come and visit us in New York from Chicago about twice a year when there was ever a, 
um, a large meeting. Procter and Gamble owning both those shows would call for a meeting semi-annually, and my father and Erna would attend and prepare and then attend. So yes, um, Erna Phillips was not only the grand dame of, of soap operas, but also uh, an extremely interesting person. And I use that word in the in the Asian sense of it. Interesting meaning many different things, and uh, um, just an incredibly pioneering woman. Uh, a single parent of two children, adopted children, uh, just as quirky as could be, but had an incredible imagination. And, and from Chicago, she would write at one time four soap operas, which is, you know, it's just incredible that she was able to do Guiding Light, World Turns, Another World, and Days concurrently. Uh, but Agnes Nixon and Bill, Bill um, Mr. William Bell, uh, were her two pupils, you know, her her other adopted children, her older adopted children, she taught Bill and Agnes the ropes. And Agnes, of course, was writing script, as was Bill for First Gandhi Lightning World Turns. And, uh, you know, they, they sat at the feet of their mentor, Erna Phillips, as did my father, and learned the ropes from her. And, you know, of course, it's like a disciplic succession from the Ferris or the or Miss Phillips to uh, Bill and Bill, Hay, uh, Bill Bell and, and Agnes Nixon, and then on down to many other writers since. Uh, William, Ry- I'm, I'm sorry, Jim Riley, uh, Doug Marlin, uh, mm-hmm. Pat Walker-Smith. They were all trained by Erna. I remember Erna Phillips dictated the first episode of Days of Our Lives over a dictaphone, one of these new con- conventions or inventions in the uh, about 1964 to over the phone from Chicago to Los Angeles. And Pat Smith was the scriptwriter who later became the head writer of Days in the 80s. And Pat took copious notes, wrote the script verbatim uh, over the fire. The, the first lines in, on the first episode of Days were, you know, Alice and Tom. One was coming down the stairs, one was in the living room, one said Tom, the other said Alice, Tom, <laughs> Alice, etc. And, you know, beginning of history 56 years ago. Yeah, I can't say enough great about Erna. She, she really is kind of not credited as she should be for the person that, that put soap operas on the map, not only in radio, but in television. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about Agnes? Well, Ag- Agnes and, and I weren't as close as Mr. Bell and I were because, you know, Bill was more directly responsible for As the World Turns as a scriptwriter and worked directly with my father. Agnes went on um, with Guiding Light, and then I think she left Erna's uh, employee early to start uh, All My Children and then later One Life to Live at ABC. So, um, yeah, I had great respect for Agnes, and Ag- Agnes was there many, many years later when my mother and father were given a, a posthumous uh, Lifetime Achievement Award by the uh, Television Academy, and Agnes presented me and our family with that Emmy Award. She just was an amazingly um, dignified and brilliant writer and, and person. I, I adored Agnes. And, and Bill and Agnes, you know, you just they were just an amazing tag team, and I think a bit competitive, too. They each were trying to, you know, have their show outdo the other, whether it was uh, All My Children and, and Young and Restless at the later dates in the 70s. And that that's a good thing. You know, uh, we need more Bill Bells and Agnes Nixons these days. Um, not that there are any more of them, but they they also uh, don't get enough credit for what, what they did to advance the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell us about Bill and your relationship with him. Well, Bill would come to again to New York from Chicago a few times a year. He'd come out to Long Island where we um, we had a little cottage in the summer, and I would play with his kids, and he'd sit on the front porch and talk with my mom and dad about world turns and and you know what he wanted to do in the future. 
Uh, Bill was a, an amazing man, also extremely imaginative, uh, extremely uh, religious. He was a, a devout Catholic, uh, as was his family and is his family. And uh, that found its way into uh, Young and Restless when we would get to the Friday shows, even on Days of Our Lives, his Friday scripts. And they would always be, we jokingly said, a sermon somewhere in the midst of the Friday episode where Bill would impart some religious uh, knowledge to us. And he was a very bright man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy to think about you playing with the Bell children and now you are all, you know, carrying the mantle for your parents. It's, yeah, it's, it's impressive. Quite, quite a legacy. It's, a, it's an endowment and it's a, it's a privilege to do so. And I know that Bradley feels the same way. Um, we have great respect for each other. I think Brad would like to have another, uh, let's see, B&B one on the air and I think it's 80, 87, seven, right. It's the same year my mother passed. And I remember Mr. Bell coming to the funeral and I asked him how it was going. He said, I don't know. I've got this new, this new show on the air. I don't know if it's going to make it. It's a half hour. And it's kind of tough these days, but we'll see what we got. Wow. <laughs> we look back and laugh because, you know, he turned over the mantle to Brad many years ago. And Brad is not only a, a great writer, but a great producer. And, you know, there ain't too many family-held businesses these days, and, and these are lives and bold and beautiful are. Mm-hmm. Um, so were soap operas a big topic of conversation around the dinner table when you were growing up? No, ma'am. Uh, we, uh, we children were, well, first of all, it was, I don't want to put this uh, in a condescending way, but you just didn't go to school or high school and say, gee, my mom and dad have a soap opera because no one would have given, you know, a a, a damn about it. Just, oh, that's a nice job. What else did they do? So uh, at the dinner table, I would uh, kind of through osmosis, listen to their discussions, mostly about Erna Phillips and As the World Turns before Days Went on the Air. And then when Days Went on the Air in November of 65, my father was very ill. He, he was, he, his last lap, as we say, was his strongest. He made sure the show was launched and strong, but he passed, uh, what was it? Nine months, eight months after Day's debut, November of '65, he passed. July '66, and uh, it was really more my mother who took over the show at a time when women in um, any business and entertainment were just not not only not looked up to, they were looked down upon, and we didn't have the the ability then, as in now, to um, rise as quickly as um, their male counterparts. So it was tough for my mom as a female executive to take over the show in 1966 and, and, you know, satisfy the network that she was able to do the job as an executive producer. As a matter of fact, they put her on three month cycles as an executive producer, even though Gordy Productions owns days of our lives, the, you know, the field general, the executive producer is approved by the network. And NBC had, they were a little leery about Betty Corday taking over as executive producer of the show. So they put her on three month cycles and, I think it was about 10 years, 10 years later, yeah, in the, in the uh, mid seventies when days had really vaulted and Bill Bell was head writing the show and we had Bill and Laura and Mickey and Doug and Julie, my mother ran into the same executive in an elevator and he said, oh, it's so wonderful what days is doing, Betty. I'm so happy to see it going to an hour, et cetera, et cetera. My, my mother in her typical Boston um, glib way said to this executive, what does that mean? I'm still on three month cycles. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, she never had a contract with, with NBC. You know, it was, it was either, you know, get get a pickup, get another year or two on the air, or pack up your tent and leave. And we've been fortunate to be able to pitch our tent for 56 years, 
on the doorstep of NBC, and they've just been a wonderful parent to us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your mom a little more. Um, your mother, Betty Corday, is a big deal in the history of the genre as well. Um, so she had been an actress and worked in casting before she was drawn into the world of soap. So just tell us what she was like and what you remember well, about her. I do. I know a lot about my mom and dad because, of course, they, you know, imparted their life stories day in and day out. And, you know, couldn't ask for two better mentors. My mom. Uh, came out of Boston. She was a Boston debutante at 17, and her father lost everything in the crash in 29. So she finished high school in Waltham, Massachusetts, you know, a public high school, and immediately went to New York and started working in a secretarial pool. One thing led to another. She became an advertising representative for Bettman Bowles, and then an advertising representative on the daytime um, radio shows, the soaps, and then later television shows. Uh, her career as an actress was was short-lived to say the least. Uh, mm-hmm. My father was casting a Broadway show called Tortilla Flat, which is a, a Latina show, a Latino show set in a, I believe it's set in Mexico. It was one of the first Hispanic Latino shows on Broadway. And she read for the chorus line in um, Tortilla Flat. My father was the director. He took her aside afterwards and said, Michelle, you know, we all know that you're a redheaded Boston Irish woman and you really do not belong in this production, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to take you out to dinner. And uh, the rest was history. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, okay, so was it Days of Our Lives that brought your family to California, or how did they wind up making the move? Yes, it was. It was actually, my father had talked to Erna, and he said, you know, Erna, I'd, I'd like to do my own show. So Erna said, I've got an idea. They knocked around Days of Our Lives for a while, and he said, I'm going to go to the West Coast and see if I can sell it to Columbia Pictures slash NBC. They don't have a, a so NBC's not producing a soap on the West Coast and they weren't in 1965. So that sold not only Days of Our Lives as a half an hour, but another soap short-lived called Morning Star, which debuted in March of 65, uh, six months, eight, seven months before days. And uh, that brought us to California in 1964. We just dropped everything lock, stock and barrel. And my dad was a, a very intrepid pioneer and he just took a flyer and said, okay, here we go. We're moving to California. And uh, I know we have friends and family on the East Coast, but his brother, um, my uncle, Elliot Corday, an eminent uh, doctor, lived in, in Los Angeles and he wanted to be close to Elliot. And then this was an opportunity to put two shows on the air, which were guaranteed each one year. Uh, Guiding Light never saw it past March of 65, uh, 66. Uh, and, you know, my father knew the days was his chance at legacy. So he put everything into it before he passed in July of 66. But that, yeah, in direct answer to your question, that that brought the Mayflower moving van to our apartment in New York <laughs> on 91st Street on the west side, which was a pretty tough part of town back in the 60s. And so we moved to Los Angeles from New York. Culture shock, to say the least. I could only imagine what was that like for you? It was difficult because I had gone to a, a, a Christian school, a preparatory school for the first eight years of school. And as a freshman, I went to Beverly Hills High School, public high school with 3,000 kids. And, you know, I just couldn't talk to anyone for the first two years. I was so in shock to see, you know, these beautiful young blonde women driving around in Corvettes at the age of 16. In New York, you couldn't drive till you were 18. So I don't think I opened my mouth for the first two years of high school. <laughs> but every, okay. every night at, at the dinner table with my mom after my dad passed, and she would share with me the uh, ins and outs and the difficulties of, you know, not only just being a, a female executive at that time, but also shepherding the show 
into the future and trying to protect my dad's legacy. And so, you know, without even meaning to, she was my greatest teacher. And her lesson to me was, oh, the last thing you want to do, Ken, is get into television. It's a, it's a difficult business, you know, stay with music, which is my passion. And, uh, you know, it's the old adage of, you know, don't throw the rabbit into the briar patch. Whatever you do, the rabbit pleads, or a rabbit pleads to not be thrown into the briar patch. And so my mother kind of reverse psychology was working on me saying, don't, don't, whatever you do, get into television. And <laughs> in, the, in the end, I was, I was greatly wooed by not only just the music on Days of Our Lives, but the production on Days of Our Lives. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to the um, creation of the show. So you said it made its debut on NBC on November 8th, 1965. So what are your memories of that time period, the creation of the show, getting it cast, getting it to air, like what was the vibe around your household? Well, I was I was 15 when Days debuted, um, and my father was diagnosed with cancer earlier in the year, and it was untreatable cancer. So it was more about you know getting through the last year year and a half of his life. That was more important to us than this little show that he had launched. I think his his passion and my mother's passion was to keep it alive, but they didn't you know put that onus on either myself or my brother who was two years older. Um, it wasn't until my dad passed, really, and, and Days was nine months old, that I realized the seriousness of the situation that, you know, without Days on the air, we would probably be back in New York. The house they bought, my father bought on the GI Bill. He got a loan from, you know, being in the service in the Second War. And, you know, it was hand to mouth for quite a while. And as the little engine that could was trying to get up the hill in his first few years, Days was really on the bubble in, in 66 and 67. And it wasn't until Mr. Bill Bell came to us in 68, I believe it was, as head writer, his first job as a head writer, and uh, he put the show on the map. Mm -hmm. um, so did you spend time at the Day studio when you were a teenager? Definitely not, Stephanie. I was, <laughs> I was a high school student playing in a rock and roll band, and I didn't even want to admit the fact that, you know, my mom was producing Days of Our Lives. People would have gone, well, that's nice, but... You know, do you know this song? And can you play the drums on this song? And it was just no big deal in the 60s. It really wasn't until 10 years later, you know, walking through the San Francisco airport when I was in college, I looked up on the newsstand one morning and there was, you know, I think it was Time Magazine had the cover of Days of Our Lives, Doug and Julie on the cover. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, holy mackerel, you know, mom and dad's little show has made the cover of a national magazine. I guess we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you talk about how your first creative passion was music. Um, was your mother supportive of that? Um, did you ever feel any pressure to follow in their footsteps and take on some responsibility at days? No, she was very, very smart about that. She said, you know, obviously we all should believe this, but do what you're passionate about in life that will serve you more than just having a quote-unquote job. So I went to undergrad school at University of California Graduate School and and studied composition and music, and that's all I wanted to do. And I started teaching in 77 after grad school and also started, by the way, writing some background music for Days of Our Lives. But my passion was music and, and teaching and composing in, in the Bay Area. And one summer, I think it was 78 or 79, I came to Los Angeles to hear the way that some of the music I had written was used on the show. And uh, the old adage is Ken walked through the, the back door. He walked in the back door backwards and said he was leaving and never left. <laughs> so and that's how I got into a Stephanie. It's just, it was, you know, just came down to listen to the music 
one thing led to another. And I, I just hung around for the first two years, answering fan mail, being a gopher, getting coffee for the producers and you know, learning the ropes from uh, the bottom up. I didn't want to be the boss's son who just, you know, had the, sil- the silver spoon. So in the late 70s, you did start working at Days from the ground up, it would seem, as a production assistant. So what were your duties and your first job there? It was an interesting job. because It was actually a very good learning experience. My mother said, you know, we get thousands of fan mail letters a week. I want you to read each one, categorize them, and give us a report every week or so about what the, the viewers are saying. So, uh, you know, what better way to learn a show than through the viewers' uh, eyes? And uh, I answered fan mail, or I read fan mail, and turned it over to the, the important ones to the producers and writers and did that for the first about year, watched dress rehearsal every day and taping and just tried to soak everything up and uh, learn from the ground up, learn everyone in the crew, what everyone's job was, learn their first names as well as last. My father always knew everyone's first name in the crew and in the cast. My mother uh, was was so involved, she would always refer to cast members by their character names. So she walked in the studio and say to Matt Carey, hi, Tom, to Prince, <laughs> hi, Alice. To Bill and Susan Hayes, hi Doug and Julie. She she never broke that fourth wall. They were um, Doug, Doug and Julie. Bill Bill and Susan Hayes were Doug and Julie to her, and no one else. So that you know that was kind of the the first three four years of my learning experience. Stephanie on days was just soak it up, see what you think of it. And uh, by 1980, I was I was all in, as they say, mm-hmm. around the table. NBC and, and Columbia Pictures came to me without my mother's knowledge and said. What do you think about being one of the line producers on the show? I said, well, you know, I haven't gone to drama school, but I think I know what the, this show is about now. It could use an injection of youth. So I jumped into line production, late 79, early 80. Well, was that something you welcomed? Oh, I very much welcomed it. My mother was a little surprised because the studio and the network did not inform her that they were going to tap me. And after they tapped me, I said, of course, yes, I better talk to Betty Corday. And my mother said, well, if you want to do it, you better do it well. And so, you know, no pressure. <laughs> I jumped in and I was in the booth every day from, you know, eight in the morning until we wrapped. Had to had to learn, you know, the nuts and bolts of actually what it takes to get a show done every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1986, when your mother decided to semi-retire, you became the show's executive producer. Uh, so what would you say you learned about producing from your mother that guided your conduct as an EP? My mother was a brilliant communicator. That was her greatest gift. And, and it is any producer's greatest gift is being able to communicate with anyone at any time over any issue. And uh, she never, you know, what's the word, got flustered. She never showed temper. Uh, she was always cool, under fire, and uh, was able to talk to anyone, be it a, a cast member who was high up in the strata and had issues or a, a script writer that just didn't understand why they were writing this line today. And, she taught me that that is the most important qualification, not only in understanding you know the fabric of days, but your daily job is to communicate uh, you know what the legacy of the show is to everyone and make sure we don't stray. Um, producers are nothing more than how do I say it? Um, uh, what do you call them in, in, in museums? Protectors of the art. We mm-hmm. have to keep keep the viewers coming through the gallery, looking at the beautiful art that are, you know, the stories that the writers and, and actors create and just make sure that they're uh, framed right every day and 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 afresh uh, every day. Um, you know, the custodian, as it were, of this 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 great legacy. Mm-hmm. Well, did you ever feel like you had to prove yourself in a different way to the cast and crew, given your last name? Definitely. It was it was tough. 
the first few years, uh, how do we, I don't want to use the word drain the swamp, but there, there were some pretty um, tough times, not only for me, but for people that were in place that uh, needed to be uh, relieved, so to speak, and, and changed out. You know, they were the old guard. They really weren't treating my mother with respect. And of course, the, the um, stigma of nepotism being the boss's son always hung over my head. So I had to get over that as well as prove myself uh, just as, as capable. And that took a while. But I would say by 1984, when my mother was talking about retirement, her health was failing. I was ready. I was ready to take, as they say, the sword out of the stone and yield it and do what or wield it and do what needed to be done. So that was that was a very good two years, 84 to 86. I met my wife. I got married and took over the show. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, you shared the executive producer title with your mother until her death in 1987. So what was it like for you to be the sole Corday at the helm after that? Daunting. And it still is to this day daunting. I don't wake up any day of the year and think of my mother and father first and, and thank God for them and, and, and be grateful for them in this day. Um, those are shoes that I will never really fill. They were uh, great teachers. You know, hopefully I've I've surpassed what what they hoped for the show and what they hoped for me. But, you know, I always hold them in the highest esteem and and look to them in anything I do. I try to uphold their reputation as much as the shows are mine. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously you've worked alongside so many legendary day stars over the years. Um, Tell us what you remember about the first couple of Salem, Francis Reed and McDonald Carey, who played Tom and Alice Horton. Oh my gosh. They were just, first of all, they, my, my father just, they were beloved by my parents. My father had worked with McDonald Carey uh, early on and uh, admired his film career. And he'd worked with Francis Reed on Broadway early on in Shakespearean productions back there. Just loved them both as actors. So when Days was created, he said, they're the perfect Tom and Alice Horton if I can convince them to do it. And so he said to McDonald Carey Mack, um, I know you're a film star, but would you consider doing a soap opera? You know, it might last six months or a year, but I, I'd sure like to have you aboard. <laughs> Mac would tell me these stories later and said, we never thought the show would make it, you know, a few years, let alone 5, 10, 15, 50, et cetera. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Francis was just, you know, Francis was, there was no one like Francis. He was the mother for all of us, the matriarch of matriarchs. Both the patriarch and matriarch of the show, Tom and Alice, and, and just there wasn't much difference between McDonald Carey and Tom Horton or Francis Reed and uh, Alice Horton. They projected their personas into those characters, and they were extremely lovable and approachable and, and just wonderful, wonderful actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look back at the show by decades. So what stands out to you about the 1970s? Uh, learning days of our lives, you know, becoming familiar with the story of Mickey and Bill and Laura, becoming familiar with Doug and Julie, uh, understanding that as a person in his young 20s, the the genre was still being driven by people in their, how do I put this, late 30s, mid 40s, and, you know, having to understand the the sensibilities and sensitivities of that generation, which, of course, is a couple of generations older than me. And, uh, you know, that was what the 70s were about, learning days. Things changed after the 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there was quite a heyday for days, at least for many viewers, including myself in the 80s with all the super couples. So what do you think of when you look back at that time? 
I think it was the golden age of days of our lives. You know, in my life, it was, you know, some of the best years of my life. Uh, It was just, it was one heck of a roller coaster uh, just to be on the show from, say, 80, 81 to the late 80s. The advent of Pat Falcon Smith as our head writer, the creation of the Brady family, the Demira family, the Kiriakis family, as well as the expansion of the Horton family, you know, and, and super couples coming in, starting with, you know, John and Marlena, Bone Ho, Patrick Kayla, Shannon Kimberly. I could go on, Jack and Jennifer. Right. And, <laughs> an embarrassment yeah, of riches. An embarrassment of riches. And really all could be laid at the feet of Pat Falcon Smith, who only wrote the show for about six months when she came back to us in the 80s. And then there were some business complications and you know we wanted her to stay but she couldn't and yet her fingerprints are still squarely in the middle of the show those mm-hmm. families that she created the geography of salem that she created still drives the show today mm-hmm. um now jim riley coming aboard really changed the show and the whole genre in the 90s um so ah, what yes. do you think of when you think of that time the gay 90s as we call them yeah jim was a Jim was the first science fiction writer to ever appear on Days of Our Lives, and uh, <laughs> he was he was able to add such a kooky and wonderful element to what had been more of a traditional storytelling bent on the show. And all of a sudden, people were being buried alive, possessed by the devil, God knows what. And uh, you know, I laid it. And Jim James E. Riley was uh, another man with an incredible imagination and bold. He took risks that people weren't taking in daytime. And uh, you know, when Marlena Evans is being levitated. Week after week, um, viewers are going, when's this going to end? This is ridiculously amazing, but, you know, it's got to end sooner or later. It was supposed to end by, uh, I think, Christmas of its first year, and it didn't end until Easter. Jim just made that story as, as wild and wacky as could be and continued to do so with the rest of his storytelling, uh, at least until he started Passions. Then, of course, he was his duties were bifurcated. He was doing two hours of daytime drama by the uh, I think Passions were on late 90s. and uh, But he, he again, had put his fingerprints squarely in the middle of the show and changed the landscape in daytime daytime drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we entered into a new century. Um, you know, what could you say, like you look back on, that stands out to you about the last, you know, 20 years since we entered the aughts? Yes, it was, uh, well, after uh, Y2K, where everyone thought the world was going to come to an end and didn't, uh, we went from 2000 to today. The 20 years since 2000 seemed to have passed in a blink for me. You know, I can look back at 2000 like it was yesterday. The thing I remember most is as more and more television was available to people, instead of four or five network shows, there were the advent of cable, then later the digital platforms and more viewers, of course, more um, selections, alternatives for them to watch. So uh, the four soaps. As, as the four remaining soaps at that time was more like six or eight were um, eroded by so much more television. And I get what I'm getting to here is that um, money got tight, things got tight, and we had to learn to do the show on a smaller budget, more efficiently. We couldn't do these lavish locations anymore. We had to, you know, make the same chocolates every day for half the price. Did you ever feel particularly, you know, challenged by that or did you roll with the punches? I mean, obviously your production schedule changed in a way that no other show had. Right. I did roll with the punches. Yes, it was challenging and is to this day. But, you know, the most important thing is I I defy anyone to say, okay, this is this is the week that Days was working for less uh, 
a smaller budget than it was the week before. The, the shows just seamlessly got through all of these changes and you didn't see a lack of uh, effort or talent or uh, production value on the show, even though you know, we were doing it at a much faster pace and for less money. So now you also have had some turnover in the past decade, namely on your writing team. But when Ron Carlovati came in within the first year, you won an Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series. So what did it mean for you to have that trophy on display at the studio again after so many years? Well, it's it's trophies now. Well, Stephanie. now it's trophies, but we're talking yeah. about the first one. I know. The first one was a very, very long drought. I think Days had won Best Show in 19... 19- Geez, 75, 77, just after it went to an hour. And we didn't win it again until, you could probably help me with this date, 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. It was my birthday. It was Father's Day of that year. And it had been a hell of a long drought. It had been 30 years. So we were like the Susan Lucci of uh, best shows. And we, when we finally won it, it was, it was wonderful. Um, that was not Ron Carlovati's show, I believe. But when Ron came in, Again, it was like the great head writers on Days of Our Lives, I can count on one hand, most likely a few fingers on one hand, starting with Erna, and then Bill Bell, and then uh, Pal Falcon-Smith, James E. Riley, and uh, Ron Carlevati. They have a gift, the gift of storytelling. And, you know, that's why people watch Days of Our Lives, for their story, quote-unquote. You, you talk to the, anyone on the street, the average any man, woman, who is our viewer, they say, well, I watch for the stories. You know, they'll have their favorite character here and there, but it's the story that keeps them view- viewing. Mm-hmm. And, and these five writers get it. Ron gets it. It didn't take long for Ron to, to figure out the landscape of what was a new show for him coming from One Life to Live to Days. Uh, sorry, General Hospital to Days. And uh, now Ron is extremely talented, extremely bright, and extremely caring. He uh, he has a bit of that Jim, Jim Rileyism in him. He, he mm-hmm. likes the the fantastic, phantasmagoric stories, but he also understands the value of, you know, of romance and family. That's true. I mean, the show really, of all the shows, was made for him to come in and sort of carry on the tradition, in a sense, of Jim and sort of take his own twist on it. Yes. Recently, I, I, I sent a little text or email, I forget what it was, to Ron saying, you know, Ron, in the last six months, I have not been giving line notes on scripts or outlines I, I i think your writing is great not only that i, I now trust you. you you know the landscape and i trust you to be the uh the custodian of this great show and continue writing it as you have been and you know ron's just great i i don't worry about ron you know occasionally he needs a degree or two of uh correction but those times are few and far between mm-hmm um, now let's turn to the pandemic shutdown. It's March, and I would imagine the other shows are in a bit of a panic mode, knowing they only have a limited amount of episodes. But you had seven months in the can. Now, you mentioned how that felt, but if you had had to run reruns, are there any episodes or storylines or time periods of the show that you would like to see again? Yes. Uh, we kind of look, we glanced at that in the... Uh and the possible eventuality that uh, Days would not be able to resume production and we'd have to go into repeats. And I think we would have taken it, I don't know, in a perfect world, I would have taken it back right to the possession story with John and Marlena and aired that for a week or two or three or four or months. You know, I don't think we could have gone as far back as Mickey, Bill, Laura or Doug and Julie. I, you know, th- the 80s were pretty amazing times. So we could have started there, done the best ofs, the best of weddings, the best of, uh, you know, funerals, the best of um, 
marriages, et cetera, et cetera, the best of adventures and remotes. It, it wouldn't have been hard to encapsulate, you know, short run um, repeats, you know, for a week or two. But in a perfect world, we didn't want to do that. It, people watch this because it's a serial drama. It's not a series. You have to watch it day in, day out, see what happens the day after the day you watch, as opposed to, I'm going to watch a show from 20 or 30 years ago. I know what happened in the show. So, you know, I'm not as invested in it. So we were very fortunate. We were very fortunate in that we had over seven months, as we say, in the can pre-taped. And, uh, you know, the clock ticked, though. And as we shut things down March 13th, Friday, the 13th of March, as the pandemic wiped out, um, you know, life Mm -hmm. as we used to know it in this country, we the clock ticked. And I knew that we would have to get back into pre-production in June, July and start shooting again at the end of August or we would be up against the repeat wall. So long answer to your question, uh, very difficult and daunting challenge. Uh, I think all four soaps have shined and gone through it. Mm -hmm. Well, can you tell us about how you've specifically gotten the show ready to return to production? What kind of steps have you taken for that? Very myriad rigid steps working with the, uh, the CDC and the uh, County health um, board. We, we've we've had to hire, a, excuse me, a, a crew of uh, health workers that, you know, um, monitor the stage. We have three on the stage, one that does testing every day for everyone coming in. It's a 15 minute turnaround. Um, the, the stages are set up totally different, partitioned. You know, it's this, the rigid protocol of, of COVID is masks and not only just washing hands, not touching face, but, you know, the social distancing of having to partition everyone off in the control room, uh, everyone off in, in um, on, the, on the floor, and on the, sorry, where we take the show, and, you know, the actors walk into the set with their masks on, take their masks off, do the scene, masks back on to their dressing room. It's, it's a very well-protected bubble, but the response I've been getting the first few days of production is we feel safer in a way, on the stages at days, two and four stages, than we do at uh, at home sometimes, mm-hmm. and that's what we want. That's great. Yeah. 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 Um, so there has also been a lot of well-publicized cast turnover lately, both people coming and leaving. Um, so what can you say to the fans who are concerned that quote everyone is leaving days? Well, being totally candid, that's a bunch of hooey. <laughs> we've had <laughs> we've had two really important cast members leave the show, both of their own volition and, and Greg Vaughn and Christian Alfonso. It was not our druthers, but um, so be it. And I applauded their moves. Um, everyone else who was rumored to be leaving the show, I, I, I chalked that up as rumors. Uh, stay tuned for all of your other favorites to return or to be on campus sooner than you think. Mm-hmm. So there is... Uh, full cast as far as you are concerned. Oh, yes. Uh, the Salem Inn, as we put it, is extremely full right now. <laughs> okay. Um, so what can we expect to see when you come back on air? Will there be noticeable changes? No, there won't, Stephanie. I, You know, I've been watching taping the last few days, and it's just, it's flawless. It's, it's as if, you know, we didn't have five months to to shut down and get worried and try to reboot. We just, everyone hit their marks, and it was like a day hadn't passed from the Friday the 13th to Monday the 31st of August. You know, that's, I don't know, I can't do the math quickly, but I think it's five and a half months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we didn't miss a beat. Right back at it. Were you thrilled to see your cast and crew again? I stood all together? On the floor. Oh, God, yes. I, I stood on the floor at the end of the first day of taping, which was actually... We did a dry run on Monday, this Monday, the 31st, then on the 1st of September, rolled tape and, and had the, the actors there. And 
we wrapped at 4.30 that day. We're only doing one show a day now as opposed to, that's five a week as opposed to eight a week. But I stood there, you know, teary-eyed and just silently, you know, hugged everybody and applauded as much as I could as the crew and the cast walked by. You know, your, your first inclination is just to walk up to everyone and hug them. And we can't do that, but I was just so proud of them and so gratified that the people had the courage to come back and do this and do it as well if not better than we were doing it before mm-hmm. well i can't wait to see the new episodes air um which will be in october correct but on november 8th you will mark your 55th birthday our days of our lives will mark his 55th birthday i should say what does it mean to you to be celebrating such a historic milestone well i'm 15 years older than 55 so uh, I can remember 15, uh, the show debuting, and to be 55, it's just my mother and father would have never dreamed of this. And to be honest with you, I didn't dream of it, but until, say, 10 years ago, I thought, well, you know, we're looking at more of an iconic show now than just another soap. And uh, it just means the world to me that Days continues on to our 56th season. I said to the cast on, on the floor when addressing them that I believe the show will live to be 60. And I think it's a matter of being optimistic and believing that that will happen, that will get us there. It's, uh, you know, I would love to be the longest running show in the history of uh, dramatic television. And do you have any message to the fans who have been loyal viewers and are listening to this podcast? Yes. First of all, we love you. We adore you. And we're grateful for your viewership. Without you, we're zero. And we remember that. We remember that our obligations to the viewers more so than the sponsors or the network or the staff or the head writer. You know, we all look to the viewers as the barometer of whether our show is successful or not. So I'm grateful to all of our viewers for staying with us. Um, I I would say that, uh, you know, my mother's three most important lessons to me still hold true. One, you're only as good as your last show. So we can't rest on the laurels of what we were doing 10 years ago or 10 months ago or 10 days ago. We really have to look at the most recent show to see if we're doing well or not. Second uh, law of Betty Corday was you have to love the genre of soap opera to, to, to do it well. And I love soap opera. I love Days of Our Lives. Sorry, daytime drama, as we now call it. Um, it's just a fascinating genre to me. It's a storytelling genre because you get to do 260 hours a year. And uh, so you have to love the genre. But most importantly, her lesson to me, the third lesson was you have to love the people you're working with. And that's, you know, I don't mean to sound cliche here or sentimental, but it is a family, the day's family that works behind the scenes, in front of the cameras. We all feel like family to each other, all two or three hundred of us. And uh, that goes a long way when you come to work and you look at everybody that you're working with. You know, I, I love working with these people. They're like family to me, a second family. That that's money in the bank, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. And it certainly shows on camera. Um, thank you. Well, thank you so much for all your time today and for sharing your stories. We really love talking to you and we look forward to, even though we haven't missed an episode, we look forward to the new episodes that we'll see next month. Thank you. Hopefully you, you will not be disappointed. If anything, you'll be uh, excited to see what we've got coming. I'm sure we will. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ken. We'll talk to you soon. Stay tuned. We will. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Ken Corday for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.